So um, we're looking as best we can at giving an overview of the Bible uh, in a few months. And as we've said each week, it's kind of stepping back and having the big picture does us good. It's good at times to zoom in, see specific things and stories, see how God interacted with people, see what we can learn. But very few of us have the opportunity to get the overview and to see how it holds together. And that was the aim of this series. Um, <clears throat> what's uh, been going, what I've got this morning is 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, and some of the Psalms. Um, so compared with what the guys before me have had on some of those weeks, where they've had kind of five, six, seven books, I feel I've got it light. And then I started reading it and thought, goodness, which one of these stories uh, around David would we want to open up? We could put the first slide up. David is known as the Shepherd King, and we'll see why as we go through some of this. Um, just incredible stories, that any one of which you'd want to dwell on and see God work. Just a reminder, <clears throat> rather than kind of go through the historical overview of what we've looked at, I thought I'd remind you of some of the big themes. So the story begins with God in the garden with his people, God wanting to share his love, share who he is, and creates everything and says, this is really good. Um, and then man ruins it and turns his back on God. And ever since then, God has been wanting to restore. God has been wanting to make new. If you're here this morning and you're thinking, well, I'm glad you're going to try and do the Bible in 20 weeks. Um, I don't really understand it much, or there seems to be a lot of violence or a lot of horrible stories in there. Do people really take this book seriously? If you read it from the perspective of actually what is happening is that God is getting right involved with trying to sort this mess out and has to do it through the lives of evil, wicked people who have distorted everything, then it begins to make more sense. Because that is what's happening in every situation. God, rather than kind of shouting from the sidelines, don't do that, that's wrong, that's evil, or rather than God coming in with a huge army to wipe everything out, God has decided actually what he wants to do is to get involved in the detail and see if he can rescue this from the inside out. And that is the, the summary of what's going on from Genesis through to Revelation. So God, <clears throat> at one point, does say he's going to start again. The story of the flood. Say, so man is so wicked, I'm going to start over with one family. And then that family uh, also go wicked. And so God chooses a, another called Abraham. And makes a, a promise to Abraham, which is remarkable. We looked at that a few weeks ago. And said, through you, all peoples on earth will be blessed. And I'm going to make you into a great nation. So God is deciding, again, it's a similar thing to, to Adam. Adam, you reproduce, subdue the earth, rule over it. Then he comes to Abraham and says, I'll make you into a great nation. And through <coughs> Abraham and his descendants, God is going to rescue humanity from sin and wickedness. And then we see that promise comes true. Abraham becomes a great nation. That nation are enslaved in Egypt. God does an remarkable rescue, a remarkable job of salvation. One of the defining stories of the Bible is the Exodus as God pulls, <coughs> uh, subdues the might of Egypt and brings Israel out. And then they get close, uh, enter into the land. And then we get all the confusion we've had over the last couple of weeks where there's no righteous rulers, there's kind of a few heroes that come through, and then when they die, sin and unrighteousness comes back. God's people say, we want to be like another eight nations. We want to have a king. And we looked briefly last week at Saul. 
and saw how the first king was Saul. Kind of began well. Looks like a king should look quite regal, quite strong, quite handsome. But it wasn't long before he began to compromise <coughs> and uh, not trust God fully. And uh, that brings us up to where we are today and the story of the shepherd king. And this really is a bit like a hero story. In terms of scholars who look at the different types of literature in the Bible, they say this is written, even the way it begins, some of the way that it's written, like your classic hero story. Uh, Apparently this week, the Avengers film, um, (coughs) next Avengers film, they had to uh, release the um, the, the kind of pre-thing, pre-trailer early because it got leaked and uh, another film full of superheroes. Listen, you just got to read the story of David if you're a superhero. He's got no secret powers. He doesn't have to put a special uniform on or a special cape or anything else. David is just a hero who can slay giants, who can take on huge armies. Um, And that's what we're going to read. But interestingly, it's not his physical prowess. It's not even his might or his strategy as a war general that shines through. In the book of Acts, we put the next slide up. This is what it says of David, that he was a man after God's own heart. That's how the Bible wants us to remember David. For those of us who have got some knowledge of the Bible, we remember some of our greatest stories. For those of us who maybe grew up in church from Sunday school, David and Goliath, this huge giant, and all the armies were scared of him. David comes along with a few stones. One stone takes him down, cuts his head off. And you think another such lovely edifying stories early on a Sunday morning. He should be more awake than you are. You've had an extra hour, remember. So come on, I can tell these stories. Um, We were pleased to know we won't be zooming in on all the gruesome detail of that. But what the Bible wants us to understand is that, yeah, there are all these phenomenal things, but actually what was really going on was that David is a man after God's own heart. And what we'll see as we whiz through this this morning is what, what did that mean? In what way was David a man after God's own heart? And if there's a theme running through this morning, it's that one. If there's an application, if there's something uh, out of all this overview that I want you to hear this morning, it's this. What does it mean to have a heart that's after God? How does that apply to you? Because another way we could have done this series, and as we talked as a team about it, and thought, are there themes that we'll, we'll take and run through? One of the things we could have done is about the heart. You could actually do the whole story uh, for, <coughs> for the Bible actually as a love story about God making a people because he loved, because he's a God of love. He wanted a community to love. Those people reject him. And what God is after in the end is the heart. Not necessarily all the outer stuff, not necessarily all the grandeur and all of that. What God wants is the heart. And that's another theme which runs through the big story. And we get to see something of what that looks like in the life of David. So let's look at uh, what happened. Let's go back to the beginning of the story of David. God has rejected Saul because Saul is not being the, the godly ruler that he should be. So God says to Samuel, I want you to go and anoint another king. And he sends him to Jesse. And uh, Jesse uh, <coughs> gets his sons out. Samuel tells him what he's going to do. He says, I want to see your sons. And Jesse gets seven of his sons out. Um, and they're good-looking men. Uh, they're good-looking, strong the kind of king material, really. If you're going to go for kings, there's a lineup. Samuel just looks at them and thinks, well, any one of these could replace Saul. Uh, David, meanwhile, our hero, uh, he's in the field looking after sheep. Um, just think that one through for a bit. 
If you've ever felt left out, have you ever felt that people have overlooked you? The prophet turns up, Jesse, I want to see your boys because God's going to do something. And Jesse, the dad, doesn't even bring the young one out. He's not fit to be seen by the prophet. Jesse doesn't know exactly what's going on here, but he just assumes he's just a shepherd. He's just looking after sheep. You want to see my boys. You want to see how ripped they are. You want to see just these guys work out. They're, they're fit. You want to see my fit boys. And then um, slide from 1 Samuel 16. This is what God says to Samuel. The Lord said to Samuel, don't look at his, the appearances on the height of his stature because I've rejected him. The Lord sees not as man sees, but man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And there it is, right at the start. Right at the start of the story, even before David is to kind of enter in as the main character, God says what this is all about. The world is so impressed with outward appearances. Wants things to look good and image and everything else. All our advertising, so much of it is around the outward and what's going to make you look good, the car you drive, <clears throat> what stuff you wear, where you live, all of that is so much about the outward. It's ever so releasing when you realise that God really doesn't care. God isn't taken up with all of that stuff. <clears throat> if you think you channel hot when the adverts come on, God doesn't even look at them. He's just not impressed by all the outward stuff and everything that can kind of fill up uh, our lives in a consumer, individualistic, status, outward-driven society. God's interested in one thing and one thing only, and that's what's on the inside. And that can't be improved by what you wear, what you dress, who you hang out with, what you drive, what toys you've got. There's only one thing that God's interested in, and that's what's going on in your heart. And this is why he is after David. So eventually Saul says, well, is this it? Is this all your boys? And uh, Jesse says, well, there's just one. He's, just, he's looking after sheep. Do you really want to? Yeah, I want to see him. And he comes out, and of course he's the one. So he is anointed king. But it will be 15 years at least. It could have been more than that. The scholars don't know exactly, but it's at least 15 years before David gets to be king. And that kind of sets the scene for the first book of Samuel's. Two books, one Samuel, two Samuel. The first book, David's not king, but he's anointed. He's living with a promise that hasn't come about. In fact, it's more than a promise because he has been anointed. So God has said, and the prophet has said, you're king. Yeah, but they're Saul. I've rejected him. You're king. And David has to live with this, with very few other people knowing, for over 15 years. And we get a glimpse of why, well more than a glimpse really, of why he's talked about as being a man after God's own heart. Because whilst there's military conquests, whilst David in the end takes on uh, Saul's army and leads Saul's army for a while and defends Israel and becomes a great hero, all of these things are going on in terms of courage, in terms of valour. Actually what's really going on is how does David get to live with this promise and this anointing and <clears throat> being recognised or appointed as the next king and yet not have it come to him. And we get to see through all of that what really is going on in his heart and why God is so taken with David's heart. <clears throat> in the story of Goliath, as I've alluded to, we see incredible courage. We also see passion for God's name. As David stands on the field looking at this huge giant and says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that should come against the, uh, the God's people? Who does he think he is to challenge God? One of the things which 
<coughs> is remarkable about David is in the end, it's not about him, it's not about his victory, it's not about his strategy <coughs> and how he's going to take down giants. What he's passionate about is God's name. This giant is dishonoring God. This mighty warrior who you're setting up before us is dishonoring God. He can't stand. No one can dishonor God can stand. And we see qualities of courage. We see passion for God's name shining through David. But Saul, in time, gets jealous and becomes David's enemy. We put the next slide up, 1 Samuel 18. Saul's daughter falls for David. Thank you very much, Helen. Thank you. Saul's daughter falls for David and offers him uh, in marriage, and he's hoping he can trap David. He says, if you want to win my daughter, go and uh, slaughter a hundred Philistines and bring me uh, another detail you don't want this time in the morning. Bring me their foreskins. And, and Saul thinks they'll kill him. They'll t- he doesn't stand a chance. But this is David. And David does it. We'll move on quickly, men. Um, and this is almost two, this is second time in the series this has come up. <laughs> So, and David does it, and he's not killed. And it says in this verse, so Saul became his enemy. Not only is David now living with the fact that he's the rightful king, the one who's on the throne, the one who's got the army, the one who's got all the money, all the finance, all the power, and supposedly all the influence, is now sworn to kill him and wants to take him out. So David is now living with God. You've promised I'm the king. And this man's done such a rubbish job, and he's dishonoring you. And I took a nine-foot giant out because he was dishonoring you, and yet this man is still on the throne. And imagine what's going on with David. Imagine some of his battles. There's battles on the field. There's battles against the Philistines and against the other enemies. But there must have been turmoil in his heart. Each of us must have had times when we thought this isn't fair. Whatever that may be, maybe at work, maybe a promotion passes you by, someone else gets it. Maybe stuff in church, someone else seems to get a bit more recognition than you do. You're the one who's worked hard for stuff, you're the one who's done loads of things, but somehow you didn't get the recognition for it, and someone else who, as far as you're concerned, did half as much as you, seems to be the one that gets the applause or gets noticed. Or maybe just with friendships, there's people around who, you kind of get on with them, but... Actually, they're always the ones to elbow you out of the way when something's really happening or you always feel that you're on the outside. David is living with something far bigger than that every single day. Sense of injustice, sense of things being unfair, sense of God, I thought you said I was king. The prophet came, he, he called for me. My dad didn't, but the prophet did. And you anointed. I felt the oil. It was poured on me. This wasn't just an exciting moment in a meeting where everyone said, oh, David, you'd make a great king. Let's have you. No, this was done, God. You did this. And now this man is out to kill me. And we start to see some of these incredible qualities as day of David as he begins to live through this difficulty and this hardship for years and years. And we see David writing some remarkable psalms in this time. So let's look at Psalm number 18. Some of the stuff that David is now writing, how he dealt with these difficulties and these pressures. I love you, Lord my God, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. 
my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. That's David's response. That was written at the time when King Saul is out to kill him. That's what it looks like to have a heart after God. God, you may have said I'm going to be king, but right now my enemies are after me. And times David had to go on the run. David had to hide. Kind of almost like Saul is just flipping between these two sides of maybe if I keep David close and, and, and he can lead the army and he'll take out enemies and we'll be safe and the people will love him. Then another day Saul's wrapped up in jealousy, taken over by it, thinking, I don't want David anywhere near me. I want to kill him. The people want to make him king. He's far too popular. I'll run after him. And you see this running throughout the book of 1 Samuel as David has to run and hide at times. And yet David's response, Lord, you're my deliverer. You're my rescuer. You're the one who is my rock. You're my fortress. Psalm 22, which is a prophetic psalm. We just put the first slide up for that one. Some of you will recognize these words because this is what Jesus cried when he was on the cross. When Jesus felt even more so than what David was feeling. He'd come to lay his life down, but now on the cross, a time of incredible loneliness, all the disciples desert him. He's being accused of a load of stuff he's never done. And he picks up, Jesus picks up these words of David. This is what David wrote in some of his darkest days of despair and thinking, but God, I've slain giants for you. I've cared for sheep when my brothers went off to fight. I've done nothing but try to honor your name. And now Saul is after me and trying to kill me. He's starting rumors about me. He's turning people against me. The anointed king is hiding in a cave. What kind of kingship is that? And so David says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? The words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry day by day, but you do not answer. And by night, and I find no rest. There are seasons when it's absolutely right to cry out to God like this. This is how you wrestle through pain, betrayal, loneliness, confusion when you think God hasn't done what he's promised. See, this is a worship song. Imagine starting with that one this morning. Zeke gets up, plays a few chords. Come on, I can't hear you. Sing it, church. Where are you, God? Why have you left me? I'm down a pit. I can't hear you. Let's repeat the refrain. Girls only. I'm down a pit. Come on, boys. Where are you, God? I'm sure there's a few more songs. I'm sure we could do this. David's writing worship songs here. This is what the book of Psalms are. Yeah, there's loads of others that talk about triumphant praise, talk about going to the temple, talk about the musicians playing the harps and crying out praise. This is a man after God's own heart. And what you see happening here is this man chasing after God. God, where are you? You see, too often when we're in difficulty, pain, and hardship, we'll either give up and not talk to God at all because we, we're confused or he seems too far away, and, and we'll throw ourselves into work or we'll throw ourselves into stuff which can, we hope will dull the pain, but of course it doesn't, or we'll just get angry and, and hurt and bitter and blame other people, blame the church, blame leaders, blame God. Actually, what the Bible shows us, God knows our pain. He knows what's going on. He knows our loneliness. And what he wants is for us to take it to him. Because he will not reject us. 
He will not push us away. It may feel like he's far, far away. It may feel like he's not close. You may be thinking, God, if you had really promised, if you really love me, I would not be feeling like this. Well, actually what God is saying, no, it's in feeling like this that you can really know my love. That there are greater depths of community, companionship, intimacy with God at the times when everybody else has deserted you and you're totally confused. This is what it means to be someone after God's own heart. When other people could have rejected, other people could have pushed you away, you can be confused yourself at what God is doing. God, I thought you'd said this. God, you said pray for healing. I prayed for healing. Now they're dead. Where does that leave me? And God wants us to wrestle these things through. There's so many other Psalms we could look at where David does this. He doesn't simply put on the other response which some Christians do. Come on, let's have any negativity. Let's be positive. You've got to praise God anyway. You've got to have faith, remember, because if you don't have faith, you're not going to see the promises fulfilled. So take hold of the promise, confess it, speak it, claim it, whatever else you've got to do to it, when inside everything is saying, but I don't even know if God's there for me right now. And you're supposed to name it, claim it, frame it, and do whatever else you're supposed to do and dance a jig on it faith looks like this faith looks like god you said but right now it doesn't feel anything like that and of course david never leaves it there the psalm goes on slide yet you are holy enthroned on the praises of israel in you our fathers trusted they trusted and you delivered them to you they cried and were rescued In you they trusted and were not put to shame. So David starts by saying, God, you've forsaken me. But God, hang on a minute. I remember times past when you rescued. I remember that you are the deliverer. I remember that you've rescued a whole nation. I remember you brought us out of slavery. And David begins to, as it were, speak to his heart. You see him doing that literally in other Psalms. Why are you downcast, O my soul? You know, sometimes when you're miserable and fed up, you just need to give your heart a good talking to. Why are you like this? Because God is the rescuer. Other times you cry out to God and say, God, I'm trying to speak to my heart here, but I'm feeling pretty lonely, pretty confused. But God, you're the rescuer. Will you come? And then at the end of the psalm, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of nations shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Within the matter of a few verses, David seemingly goes from despair to declaring that he is God over all the earth and all nations will worship him. Actually, David isn't traveling that distance. This is a man who walks with God, knows him, and this is how he prays. Yes, there's a bit of a journey there, I'm sure, in terms of as David was writing, but actually he was able to live in that place of there can be betrayal, there can be difficulty. I could be wondering, when will I be king? Seven years, eight years, ten years. When is this going to happen? But actually, God, my eyes are on you. You're the deliverer. You are the rescuer. You see, David knew that God is faithful. If God has said it, it's going to happen, and nothing anyone can do is going to stop it. If God has said it, it's going to happen. Every promise in his word will be fulfilled. Jesus will be glorified in our our nation and nations where you come from. It's going to happen. Nothing will stop it. God has promised it. 
God's given you promises, he will bring them about. And David remarkably knew this and was able to live in it. One of the things we said at the beginning of the series was you could call this God's autobiography. The Bible is a book about God. It's God making himself known. It's God revealing himself. And at this part of the story, in 1 Samuel, what you see, and you see it in lots of other books, but what you see here is David learning that God is faithful. If God has said it, then God will do it. And remarkably, for those years, David doesn't try to make it happen. He doesn't try and lead a coup. He doesn't try and ride on his popularity and say, look guys, I I took out the giant and I've taken out the Philistines and other other enemies and I fought all these battles. Now here you go. Um, Really, I should be king. Let me tell you what happened years ago when Samuel the prophet came to our house and I should be king. He doesn't put together a media team, doesn't do a YouTube broadcast, doesn't tweet, doesn't blog, doesn't update his Facebook status, the king, down with Saul, nothing. He just walks through it. He doesn't try to snatch it, grab it, make it happen. He's got the promise of God. He's the entitled king. He could do that, and none of us would think he's being a bad guy. But David says, if this is God's plan, then I'll let God do it. I'll let God make it happen. To be after God's heart means to be totally dependent on him and totally dependent on his timing and his plan and how he will do it. And David has that complete and utter dependency. If you're in the middle of stuff at the moment in your life, maybe work difficulties, maybe some financial pressures, maybe illness, And you're kind of thinking, what have I got to do to get out of this? There may be things that God wants you to do. We'll see in a minute. David wasn't passive. But your first starting point is, God, I want to be dependent on you. You're the rescuer. I want you to fix this. I want you to be the one who provides. I want you to be the one that sorts out what's happening at work. I want you to be the one that will help in my family. I want you to be the one that fixes my marriage. I want you to be the one that helps with my kids. And one of the difficulties in our instant age, and we've bought into this in the church, in terms of you've got the faith, and you believe it, and you take hold of it, you're going to see it happen, and God's going to bless you. David waited over 15 years. A dependency on God, which also means God's timing. See, one of the things we see in this story is God isn't in a hurry, which I find deeply confusing because he has made several promises along the way that we have looked at about blessing the whole earth, about bringing righteousness and justice back, about overcoming oppression, and about fixing this mess. And then Saul comes up, and he doesn't do the job that he's supposed to, so God says, well, I'm rejecting you, and here's another king. Fantastic! Let's have him king today! No. Next month? No. Next year? No. Why? This has been my puzzle this week. And the answer? I don't know. So we'll take the next 15 minutes or so and just see if we can get anywhere. What I've concluded, and not just with this story, but actually with the whole story, when you look at when Jesus was first promised at his coming, God's not in a hurry. There's a mystery there. What we do know... And what we see again and again through this story and through the stories in the Bible 
is it's all back to our theme. It's about the heart. Yeah, God wants righteousness on the earth, but he wants righteousness in your heart first. Yeah, God wants to overcome sin, evil, and selfishness, but he'll do that through your heart. And David was learning and being shaped and being refined, and God was demonstrating his purposes through David not making it happen. And we've got now this story for us, for every generation, to read and understand how God works. I don't know why God didn't do this quicker. I don't know what God was waiting for. Abraham, 25 years before he had a son. Do you see again and again, God promises, and yet his timing can be so much slower than ours. And all too often we'll cry out to God to fix things, or we'll cry out to him for justice, or we'll cry out for him to put things right. Like that, we'll cry out to God. Perfect timing, thank you Sanju illustrated exactly what we needed we'd practice that still going she can finish now with points made and we all cry out to God and when it doesn't happen maybe we'll have a tantrum or we'll give up but what if God says not this year next year what if God says keep going another few years in the end God's after our heart and he's not in a hurry because that means more to him than anything else and that's what David was learning. <clears throat> During this time, David, uh, God did provide incredible support and strength to David. The king's son, called Jonathan, became a close, close friend and an ally, and he protected David. There were times when Saul wanted to kill David, um, and Jonathan would warn him and would foil the, the plan of his father. A huge risk for Jonathan to take. His father was king, but Jonathan knew the anointing had passed to another one. And Jonathan and David were deep, deep friends. In fact, they're beautiful stories. It's worthwhile reading them in the week. We haven't got time to zoom in on them. But the beauty of the friendship that they had and how that helped sustain David and how that helped protect him. Yeah, God may keep you waiting, but he'll always provide. He'll always provide comfort or strength or sustenance. That's part of what this is supposed to do. We're not simply supposed to sit and wait on our own and think, well, God's not going to do it. I'll just keep trying to worship him and, and everything else. No, we're meant to be able to connect with one another, to share one another, to stand with one another, to say, you're still waiting, we will fight with you. There's still pain, we will pray with you. There's still difficulty, you don't know what God is doing right now, well, let us pray, let us comfort. That's what this is meant to be. That's part of what Jonathan and David is pointing to. Not just simply stand-alone heroes who can do this on their own, as we like to see our heroes these days, kind of islands who don't need anything, but actually people who need companionship, who share this. David, in writing his psalms, shared it with the world. He definitely would have shared it with Jonathan. Deep companionship, strength and comfort God provides through that friendship. David, though, whilst waiting, as I said just now, isn't inactive and passive. Others are drawn to his leadership. He is still fighting battles. He's still trying to honor Saul. He's still trying to fulfill God's purposes. And we get this um, great few verses in 1 Samuel uh, 20. David is still on the run from Saul, and he went to a cave in a place of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them, and they were with him about 400 men. 
The broken, the distressed, those in debt, those with pain, they saw something in David and they gathered to him. The shepherd, remember? He's a shepherd. He cares for sheep. That's what he'd done for years as a boy, protecting them. And now the vulnerable, who know that Saul's not going to protect them, who know that Saul's not going to lead them, they gather to David. He's not just passive. He's not just waiting. He's not just sitting around thinking, well, one day God will do this. I don't know when it is. He continues to live in a godly way, and others see that, and they gather to him. And, of course, this points to the one who would come from the line of David, as we'll see in a few minutes, another king, and he would gather the broken and the distressed and those in debt and those who are hurting, and he would be the shepherd king, and he would be the shepherd king that would reign forever, and his name is Jesus. See, the other thing we could have followed through our series is just looking at how all the stories point to Jesus, how they're all fulfilled in him. And David, of course, is the precursor, the forerunner, the shepherd king who's meant to point to one greater who will come and gather all the broken and all the hurting. At the end of 1 Samuel, two important events happen. David is still fighting, still defeating the enemies, and he returns from one battle to find that other soldiers had come and taken all the wives and all the children. And everyone turns against David. They said, we were, you were out fighting, and while you were fighting, they've taken our wives and they've taken our children. And this is a moment of, I mean, it could go either way. You're still waiting to be king. You're still not crowned. You're trying to fight battles on God's behalf. He prayed and God said, yes, I want you to take this army out. Off you go. And you come back and find your wives and children and all your army's wives and children have been taken. There's a moment for bitterness. There's a moment for anger. There's a moment for crying out, God, I said in the other one, why have you forsaken me? I'm not even going to bother asking now. I'm so cross. And this is what it says in 1 Samuel 30. David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each of his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. In the NIV it says he found strength in God. You read things like this and read, just dwell on it for a while and get the loneliness and get the despair that must have been going on. And imagine, guys, being out doing something for God, coming home, finding your wife and kids have been taken. It's not like you were absent and doing wrong stuff. You'd been doing God's work. And it says, David found strength in God. And what he did, he inquired of God and said, God, what, are you, what, what would you have me do right now? And God said, pursue the army and you'll get them back. And he did. But the point I want us to focus on is he found strength in God. Whatever you're in the middle of, Whatever's going on, God will have strength for you. God will have strength for you. It may take a while of prayer, of worship. It may take talking with others, confiding in them, saying this is a pretty desperate situation right now. I don't know which way to turn. But I can guarantee, because I see it in his word, and I know that you've got stories in this room, God will always have strength for you. There is no pit too deep. There is no night too dark. You can be surrounded by scores and scores of what seem like enemies. And God will have strength for you. There'll be tears, there'll be pain. There can be huge questions. God, why has this happened? Will they be all right? What's going to happen to them? And David found strength in God. The next event that happens at the end of this chapter, 
got to pick the pace up, is that Saul dies. There's a battle that doesn't go well, and he takes his own life. 2 Samuel begins, and David is eventually crowned king after over 15 years. And he unites the tribes because under Saul, Israel had split, and there were separate tribes, and David unites them. And he becomes king at separate times of each of the two main groups. And even then, David doesn't fight for it. Even then, he doesn't say, right, Saul's gone. Come on, everybody, I'm the king. He waits until they come to him. He waits until they recognize him. He still doesn't snatch it. David then, we see his heart coming through, and he says, I want to build a temple for God. We've had the tabernacle for years Um, just this temporary place where we could worship God. We haven't got anything now. I want to build a temple. I've got a palace as a king. You've got your homes. I want to build a temple. But then God comes to him and in the end doesn't let him build a temple because he's been a man of war. His son gets to build that. You'll hear more of that next week. But God makes this phenomenal covenant with David and this remarkable promise in 2 Samuel 7. And um, this is part of what it says, 2 Samuel 7 verse 12 onwards. God says to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you and (coughs) who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and (coughs) he shall be to me a son. The covenant making with David which promises the coming of Jesus. There'll be one coming from David's line and his kingdom will reign forever and ever and ever. Another shepherd king. But he will reign not through military might, not through military power. He will conquer the ultimate powers of evil by laying his life down. And it will be a kingdom of peace, not a kingdom of war. So even in the middle of this story, we get the pointers to David, you're a forerunner for one who's going to come. You think the kingdom's great now? Israel didn't experience, didn't have a greater time of peace than in the time of David and Solomon, which followed. This was a high point in Israel's history. But in the middle of this, God says, it isn't actually about this. It isn't actually about just this land. It's about a kingdom that will cover the earth. And it's about another one who will come. And he will reign forever. And he will be my son. David's story then carries on for the next few chapters, more military conquests, Israel now beginning to experience more peace than what they ever have done. And then suddenly, everything goes wrong. David should be at war. He doesn't go to war, just sends the troops. He's up on his palace roof, just taking a walk in the sun. And across on another roof, he sees a beautiful woman called Bathsheba. And he lusts after her, and he wants her, and he takes her. And she falls pregnant finds out that her husband is away fighting, so he arranges for her husband to be killed on the front line so he can cover it all up. And he can say, well, they they slept together before he went to war. That's what soldiers do. And, And now she's pregnant with his child. I will care for her. But God says, no, you won't. No, you won't. You're my man. You're my king. I've anointed you. And this is coming out. And he sends Nathan, the prophet, to confront him. Nathan confronts the king, and David is undone, realizes he has sinned, realizes what he has done is terrible. And you think, what, what happened at that point? Why? This man has is, never been better for him. He's pursued God 15 years more, waiting, waiting, waiting. Then the kingdom finally comes. He's vindicated. Everyone knows he's king. God comes to him and says, David, I love your heart for me. I love the fact you want to build me a house. Well, actually, here's what I'm going to do for you. 
One will come from your family years from now and he will reign over all the earth and his kingdom will be a kingdom of righteousness and it will never, never end. You think, David, you couldn't have it any better. So I wasn't expecting this. And you think, what happened? That's what the human heart is capable of. Even a heart that's passionate for God. Even a heart that can write stunning worship songs. Even a heart that can cry out to God when he's on his own and say, God, I've got you and you alone. Will you rescue me? Somehow it seems David got complacent, got comfortable, don't have to go off to war anymore. God's made a promise. My kingdom's got to last forever. Why do I have to fight? Stays at home and the temptation comes. We're almost finishing. I think this story starts so well and we finish with this this morning. Guard your hearts. It really is about the heart. Those of us who've been around a while, followed Jesus for a while, make sure we run just as hard, just as righteously, just as passionate as we did when we were younger. Finish well. Don't let complacency, don't let getting comfortable, don't stay away from the fight and the hard stuff thinking I just want a quiet life following Jesus because sin will catch you out. And sadly, this story has been repeated down through even today. We see people anointed by God who seemingly throw it all away. <clears throat> Guard our hearts. Samuel comes to him and says this. Sorry, um, Nathan comes to him and says, Look, the child will not live. And what's more to Samuel twelve eleven, Behold, I'll raise up evil against you out of your own house. And the rest of the story in 2 Samuel primarily sadly, is about that happening. How Absalom, David's son, and then others in David's household fight each other, fight for the kingdom. David has to go on the run again from people in his own household. Sin has consequences. Sin has consequences. God forgives him. David repents. We'll finish by looking at what he writes. It's beautiful. One of the most beautiful pieces of scripture as this man, after God's own heart, realizes that he'd lost his way, he runs back to God in full repentance. Oh, there is grace. There is such beautiful grace because God comes to him and says, look, there is forgiveness, but there are consequences. Don't ever misunderstand grace and think, well, it's God letting me off or it doesn't matter how I live. I hear so many people say that. Some people say, well, it doesn't matter what I do with my boyfriend or girlfriend. There's grace, isn't there? No, grace says you don't live like that. That's what grace says. Grace doesn't say live like that and it will be all right. It's never all right. There are always consequences to your life, to other people's lives, to family, to the church, to people around us. And this is what screams from the life of David. One act, seemingly this powerful man who could have whatever he wanted, one act and it brought his family down. And the rest of 2 Samuel, sadly, is still turmoil. Yeah, there's some high points, but it's turmoil as David's families turn in on itself. Sin has consequences. To be a man after God's own heart, let's make sure we run from sin. And that when we do, we respond like David did. This is what he wrote in Psalm 51. He says this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And then the next verses, verse 10 and 12. Create in me a clean heart, O God, 
and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and upholding me a willing spirit. Beautiful verses. As David doesn't argue, David doesn't try and get out of it, David doesn't try and lie. He realizes he's undone and his heart is full of repentance. And he cries out, God creating me a clean heart. And of course this psalm is pointing to the one who could do that. The only one who can create in us a clean heart is Jesus. The only one who can cleanse us is him. The only one who can make us anew is the king that was going to come after David, lay his life down and make a way where actually our hearts could be transformed. We have something which David, despite all his passion and all his longing for God, didn't have. In that in Jesus we do have new hearts. In Jesus he does start again. We are new creations. Message for us this morning, let's guard our hearts. God isn't looking just for one or two people to have passionate hearts like David did. God's looking for a whole community, the church, to be a people who we're not taken up with the outward We're not taken up with trying to impress the world. We're not taken up with trying to get the world to listen to us. God will do that. We don't need to make that happen. What God wants is hearts that are full of courage like David, hearts that are full of passion, longing after him, and hearts which will be dependent on God and say, God, it's your strength, it's your might, it's you that will accomplish this. And I know you're not in a hurry, God, so I will wait for you and I will worship and I will love and I'll have a clean heart by the power of your Holy Spirit.